Hello guys and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host Mark Kaler and uh, got, got quite a catch today. One on the 17 episodes posted, I believe this man has been mentioned 10 out of 17 podcasts and continues to be revered in our industry. So joining me today is Captain Bart Eaton. Bart, how are you today? I'm doing a lot better than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> so Bart, I know you've been listening because every once yeah. in a while you send me an email about yeah. that one made me seasick or yeah. or this or that. So you, you got the pretty much the, the, the roundabout of what we're going to do here. So let's just start right off with, with where you were first born and, and, and coming up into the industry. Well, where I was first born is pretty much where I was born. <laughs> I was born in Annapolis, Maryland, just about the same year that Hitler and Tojo decided they were going to kick America's ass, 1939. Mm-hmm. So, and then moved out. Uh, father was in the Army, went to Fort Bliss in Texas. I don't remember m- much of that. Uh, but about, El Paso. Yeah, I just know it's Fort Bliss. Mm-hmm. He, was in, he was proud of this. He was in Patton's Third Army. 7th Armored Division, and he could tell some stories if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. In any case, that, that, that was the start of the thing, and then I lived in California with his parents, and uh, my mom's sister moved up there because her husband was in the Navy. So back in those days, people all moved in the same house, and husbands were gone, and you had to kind of make do with what you got. Mm-hmm. So I was raised in the town of Red Bluff, California. Good town. I had a good good time there. You learned how to work, uh, which was good. But that's basically, and my, <laughs> my grandpa asked me one day, he says, well, what, what do you want to go up and do? And I said, well, I want to come back to the farm. He says, wait a minute. He said, I've been on this farm for 40 years. And you can't raise hell on here with a fifth of whiskey. <laughs> and so, so he pretty, pretty much convinced me that farming, and it's when you're when you look back, you know, at the time, that was great. I thought it was great, but it's pretty much rocks, jackrabbits that couldn't leave, you know. But uh, it was great, great place to be, be raised with a lot of uncles that loved to hunt and fish. I knew every game warden in the county by the name of Sneaky Pete. No matter who they were, they were all named Sneaky Pete. I didn't know they had that many people. <laughs> but in any case, that's the way it was. Being in a small town, sports was the center of my, my life. I loved, I'm not bragging, I was no damn good. But I thought I was. You know, and that was hard. That's why I'm limping now and walking on a cane. Because every team needs blocking dummies. I didn't know that at the time, but upon reflection, I figured it out. (laughs) So anyway, I'm walking off the football field one time. My coach, who I still loved, said, well, what are you going to do? You're going to college. Well, I never thought of that. It just wasn't part of the future for me. Because I was in seeing the counselor, you know how they used to bring your mom and dad in and they'd counsel and tell you what you're supposed to do. And I remember my counselor really pissed me off in front of my mom and says, oh, don't worry about saving money for him going to college. He's too damn stupid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, damn, that's stuck in my craw. <laughs> and so, well, that always stuck in my craw. But my foot, football coach says, hey, I know the coach up at this junior college. And you know, well. That was before Vietnam was even thought about. And I was, I really wasn't worried about finding a job because there was always somebody put some work in front of you if you wanted to work. So I went up there and went two years to junior college and uh, did okay, but not, I was no academic miracle. (laughs) Then I went down to another college, Chico State College, which was great. Great experience, great friends, great everything. I ran into a couple of professors I didn't think much of. They didn't think much of me. But 
So got out of there, went up to Alaska. Friend well, of mine. What and made I, you decide to run up there? Well, I was a real fan. There were two magazines in my life. One was Alaska Sportsman, and the other was Playboy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so. In fact, that's what I tell everybody now. I used to run to the mailbox. We had a farm where you had a mailbox about a mile down the road. You had to run to it certain days to get my Playboy and Alaska Sportsman magazine. Now, now I limp out to, out to my mailbox and get my boats and harbor and Pacific fishermen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that magazine is what kind of turned your well, eye. Well, yeah, I was I was wanting to go up to last That or modeling, right? You had two choices. Well, I, I, I kind of knew that in the back of my head. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I wanted to go and get a doll sheep. That was just it. So a friend of mine and I got in the truck after we graduated. And we drove up the highway, dirt road. <laughs> it was a great trip. We had a great time. Moved into Anchorage. Didn't know where we were going, what we are going to do, and hardly had any money. Drove from California to Anchorage? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, you, you, you could. Oh, yeah, no, I, I know yeah, it can yeah. be done. That's just a long trip. Yeah. Had a buddy that was coaching football at Oregon State, and we stopped over there overnight, and that's another story. I'd have to have him tell that story, or his wife. So, we had both worked in a drugstore in California delivering. You know, they, they used to hop in a truck, and you'd them over to somebody's house, small town. Well, the drugstores, they still, in these days, they had a liquor license. I guess they still do. But, uh, so they give us a case of whiskey to take with us. It lasts us all summer. You know how it goes. <laughs> we got high centered in Oregon. <laughs> and it was dead week. The whole football team and everybody's supposed to be studying. Well, Anyway, I don't want to get into it. No, but, come on now, you started it. But the football coach let us borrow his appointment because he was getting married in about a, his apartment. He's getting married in about a week. Some well-known dentist's daughter or something. So you, you can sit there. I'll be back about 10, 10 o'clock. So. so the guys start coming in, and we start snorting away on this stuff. And the next thing, these guys from Oregon wanted to do some. Because they, they were giving me a rash of shit because I'm from Chico. Let's see who can block. So pretty soon we had the chairs out in there and three on one. I didn't give a shit. You know, how I still can't walk. <laughs> but it tore that house apart. <laughs> She's finally forgiven us, I think. But in any case, well, we, we drove on up to Anchorage. First place and our, our promise was whoever got a job, and we were both going to pool everything. So we got up there and we pulled in the first bar we came to, and that was, I can't remember the name, but it was the first go-go bar in Alaska. And it was on, he's passed, so I can use his name. His name was Freddie Fagoni. So you know damn well he was connected. Yeah. And so he, he let us stay there in the back of the bar there. He had some cabins. <laughs> if we'd muck out the bar, and he kept us in beer, place to stay. And then he told us my, my buddy got a job in a Piggly Wiggly grocery store packing groceries, and he said, the fish are running in Seldovia. Well, hell, I didn't know where Seldovia was. So I got down there in Seldovia, but I didn't know to get to, to, get to Seldovia, you had to fly to Homer. And then from Homer, you had to take another plane. But I just had enough money to get to Homer. So I'm sitting on the front steps of that place for about three or four days and the pilot that was flying is it was only eight bucks flying over to Seldovia I got to know him pretty good he's coming every day and yeah this ought to be about 1959 now at this point 58 you're exactly right you, well I'm just doing some math you 1960 actually okay yeah but in any case so he lifted me over there and over there of course sunny days and you could live on the beach and I of course I had my fishing pole and I finally got a job and I a cannery shovel and shrimp. What company was that? Uh, it's called Pacific Pearl. I ever went. And then I worked there. The best part about going down there, well then after about two weeks they moved me into the bunkhouse. Because I was eating all the time anyway. I'd come by about, I had a time about in the morning. 
I'd go walking by and go, oh, hey, come on in, have something to eat. I said, okay. <laughs> so anyway, I, I worked there for a year. Got well, to, now, what was your buddy doing? He stayed in Anchorage, oh, working okay. in the grocery store. So that was it for you? you yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we kept in touch, you know. So I worked in Seldovia. It was a, it, here again, that is a great experience. You know, great guys. And it's, it's a different Seldovia than it was now. It was all on a boardwalk before the earthquake. Yeah. You said uh, bunking shrimp? Or what were you doing? Shrimp. Shoveling. Shoveling shrimp. Yeah, so they used to shovel them out of boats before they had the pumps. Yeah. So you get down in there and just right. what, throw them into a brailer bag? Or? No, you throw them in a bucket. Yeah. yeah. Kept doing that. Finally, just, of course, going into being in Seldovia is a strange guy. It's like just like a strange dog. You turn him loose in a small town. He's he has a hard time getting the other end of town without attracting every other dog in town wanting to kick your ass. Or, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So I had some real adventures there too. Then uh, I got to. Uh, the best I've heard you've asked other people what's the best way to get into the fish business if that's what you want mm-hmm. and I always recommend I recommend to a lot of people go up to Alaska either with a cannery or somebody get on the unloading crew because that's where you interface with the crew talking to the captains talking yeah, to the boats yeah talking. but uh, I don't think I've ever hired a crew I may have got one on the boat but the crew uh, the crew ran him off or kept him, either way, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, yeah, come on and give it a try. And so that, I've always felt that was the best way. I picked up a few really, really good guys off the dock. But Where'd you, where'd you go from there, from uh, from well, Trent? Seldovia, I had a, the guy that owned, uh, from there, I joined the Peace Corps in 1963, the first year, and I went to Indonesia, which was another hell of a good experience. Went to the University of Hawaii, studied foreign language and area studies and all that. That, that was before Vietnam. I knew what Vietnam was, but there was no, you know, there was a few Green Berets in the CIA. I didn't, you know, I thought it was just one of those things going to go in in two weeks and be over. Got like Afghanistan 16 years later. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was over there while while it was heat heating up. It was a good good experience because I was on the ground, learning how to speak a language, talking to the people. And one thing I learned about when you're younger and righteous, <laughs> uh, other people's problems can become your problems easier than you say, well. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But when you're young, young, younger, you know, you, you see a fight going on, you want to go and ask them, is this personal? Or can anybody get in? You know? Just, <laughs> <laughs> you can know. I get in on that? We get a, well, you uh, kind of know what I mean about the oh, a- attitude absolutely. of a young, young guy. Absolutely. And, and you're righteous at the same time, so you're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. That was kind of what that speech at Cow Palace by President Kennedy got me cranked up. We're going to go out and clean up this world. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Why not? Mm-hmm. That sounds like a pretty good thing to do in a couple of years. <laughs> well, it didn't quite work out that way. But anyway, I, I that's a whole chapter in my life about being over there and what I, what I did. I did some pretty exciting things. And then I came home, and the superintendent of the cannery that I had was told me he's going to buy a boat. He got a hold of me and says, I want you to work on my boat. And I said, okay. That sounded good to me because I always, because the first year I was shoveling shrimp, the crew in that boat made $10,000. That got my attention real quick. What were you making in the cannery? Oh, well, whatever the going wage was. It, it was by the hour. You had to know how to work the clock. I'd come out, hit the time clock, and then brush my teeth because... I, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Every, save, save the ba- save the bathroom breaks till you're on the clock. Oh yeah. Well, the cannery owner's wife was going to books, and every once in a while she'd put a question mark. <laughs> but anyway, it, it was yeah. You, you, but you could get hours uh, in in Sylvia. You get hours on a cannery because shrimp boats come in at 
midnight, you unload them and you start work at eight o'clock. So anyway, that that went on. But he he was going to buy a boat, and then he didn't buy the boat, and he bought the can cannery. So he asked me to come back and be a foreman in the cannery. Okay, but that put me in Kodiak then, because after the earthquake, I moved from Seldovia to Kodiak. And I'd fished a little crab in Kodiak on a boat. I think it was called the Sioux with Hank Gaines, a Dungeness. But that wasn't, you know, that, that was enough to get my sea legs and see how it goes. And, mm-hmm. and I kind of like that. And so I went over to uh, Kodiak with him in the cannery, but I told him when I hired on, I said, Blake, I'm, I'm looking for a boat. Okay, okay. Well, he knew everybody in town. And there were a few guys around there. Like in a small town when the Highline fishing skippers come in town, it's like seeing Willie Mays. I mean, in my my day, seeing Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. It's actually funny that you say it just like that because we've had a couple guys actually on here say that about you. Well, I don't think they ever said that because they didn't know the whole story. <laughs> no, you've, you've heard him say it. I know you've no, listened to I, I haven't heard him all. But all I'm saying is, uh, and that was really the lucky part to, to give you the real fruit of the story is, oh, I came home and I was going to come up to Alaska with my buddy. And I'm sure we got drunk and sliced our wrists and and spread blood, you know, mm-hmm. all that. We're going to do this. We're yeah. going to do this. Everybody thought we were, we were crazy, so... Just time we were going to do it, I had another buddy that went to work in Sacramento to a company called Aerojet General. I think they're gone now, or, you know, they're all melded in. And he said, get your ass down here as soon as you graduate, I can get you a job painting turbine engines. I thought, well, I could handle that. I ain't making five bucks an hour. He said, I guarantee within a year you'll be a foreman. Shit coming right out of it. You know, off, off that farm where... <laughs> Couldn't raise hell with a fifth of whiskey. That sounded pretty good to me. Right. So I asked my my dad. I said, God. I said, Well, what do you think I ought to do? He said, My dad was. He'd been. He'd been been there. He said, Well, if I was you, I think I'd go up to Alaska. You can always go to work. <laughs> well, that's all I needed, you know. Hmm. And it took all the weight. Well, there. your intentions were to go up there and hunt, right? Yeah, but I could have gone. But to but get that was a job. your dad's advice. You got a solid job, an hourly wage, or yeah. a little bit of adventure. And he says, I'd take that first. Well, that's what he was thinking, because he always wanted to go to Alaska, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Which was fortunate in our life. I got him up there after a while. But anyway, so that's, that's why I see, I think everything's kind of time and place. I call it the Lucky Sperm Club. You've got to understand that. I was never a mathematician, but I just knew there's some kind of mathematical formula for the odds. The odds. Probabilities. <laughs> and you, you sit for very long and think of the odds of you being born. And I always say... That's, I was super fast. <laughs> well, my, my outlook is that's the only race I ever won. And then I got to tell everybody it was a slow heat. <laughs> it, it doesn't say much for all those other guys, but so what? They were slow. But anyway, that's that. That's kind of the way I really view view life. You know, I'm kind of a. Uh, you, you you gotta have your pots in the water, or you ain't gonna catch nothing. You know, that's true. It, it, anyway, it, it it all got to where I I got on a boat. Fishing shrimp, and I fished crab. In fact, I was really fortunate. What was the first boat? Uh, well, the first boat, I got on the Peggy Joe with Oscar Dyson. I fished with Lloyd Cannon on the Juno. Is this the same Peggy yeah, Joe yeah, that's still yeah, running same, now? same one. And we were doing shrimp, and we were the first one to make a delivery of Pollock into Kodiak. I got documents. The very first yeah. Was it, was it a small test sample or was it? Oh, a- it was test because we're all sitting around having coffee and Oscar was always, but we were always hyped up on because, you know, you could go out to Fort Abercrombie and see the Russian boats, lights at night, driving us nuts. You know, they're right out there. 
and they're taking everything. Mm-hmm. So, well, that, that, and I'm at the age where I'm righteous. Now, now again, <laughs> when you first got on the Peggy Joe, how old were you then? Because you, you went oh, and traveled I, the world a little bit. And... After the Peace Corps. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how old were you on the, oh, the, shit, the first step on the boat? When you start asking those things, I just say, oh, back there. Okay. I, I, I've heard... There. I've heard other guys in here have a hard time coming up with what date and what time and what, I don't know. I'm just trying to put it in perspective. I know, what I didn't know you were in at that well, time. Probably after, 25, 20, 26. Yeah. After I got home, and then I I fished on the Peggy Joe, fished on the Epic. I fished on various boats. I always wanted to get on a salmon boat first, you know, because that was in cut. But you couldn't get on a salmon boat that way unless you were part of the family we went to high school with part of the family or, or something but I- anyway i just kept going and then pacific pearl this guy blake Kinnear, he bought a boat or the company bought a boat and let me run it this is that same uh company that you went over to kodiak to run yeah okay and it was built in mobile alabama called uh jody ann and ran that boat. Had some great guys on there. Had a fellow named Dave Stanchfield. I wasn't the first boat he was on, but he because he'd fished shrimp with Chet Peterson on the first double rig shrimp boat. But he was a hell of a moose, and he was a hell. I never even had to look back at the deck because he he had everybody lined up, going flying right. Redheaded Irishman, I think. And he was he was always on fire. And you and you were the captain of the boat. Yeah. So, but, but I was a captain. I was kind of like a, a second lieutenant having a sergeant. <laughs> a sergeant could take care of him. Mm-hmm. And he was great. How'd you? Uh, so where was the progression from when you first started working on the boats up to that wheelhouse? Well, that's kind of a story. That's what I'm hoping for. I was on the shellfish. And the skipper, of course, after it was built right over here at Pacific Fisherman. They used to have a boat christening in between there and here about every two weeks. <laughs> and of course, there'd be big parties, and everybody's trying to see if you could get the owner of the boat to go broke on the liquor bill for the party. Trying. And so we had a party out there, and I'm on the boat. And how I, how I got, got on there was amazing to me, too. But when we, when we were going to leave, and we go out there and had that party, it's the windjammer. Oh. Anyway, we're there, and it's... And I'd gotten to know him, he was a great guy, and the crew, but the crew all had their own buddies they wanted on the boat. So I was kind of, I don't know how it happened. Well, I do do now, and I asked George, I said, hey, George. I had, we all had our bear muscles on, so, you know, you could say it. (laughs) How did I get this? Oh, he said, well, Blake got it for you. I can still remember that, because it took me about two weeks to tell Blake I was going to quit and go on a boat. Because I was always kind of a loyal guy, you know. I, yeah. I Quitting wasn't in my blood. How am I going to tell him? How am I going to tell him? Well, Blake had fished with this guy, George, on the Genetic F. That's where he got the money to buy the shrimp plant. So old George says, well, Blake says he's okay, he's okay. Well, I so, didn't know all that. So you were offered the job, decided you were going to take it, trying to build up the... Yeah, well... What, almost the courage or something to oh, tell courage. Blake? Well, I had to yeah. go up to the office. I remember the day... Blake was kind of a jokester anyway. And he, of course, I, I knew he, because he and George were buddies. You know, well, Blake, I, I got to tell you, because this was a good job. I mean, for a job, mm-hmm. good job. Uh, so I finally told him, he said, oh, I could shock. I can remember that guy. So I felt bad, but I went off on that. But then we, we, we went out fishing crab for his cannery. Anyway, so it all worked. All I'm leading up to here is uh, every time I've had something good, well, there have been a lot of things good, but there's always been somebody who opened the door and kicked me through it. Right. Even when I didn't think I could do it. I said, oh, hell, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're working for Blake. You don't want to go anywhere else, but he's putting well, you in. Well, he's putting your name in the hat for something I wanted else. to go, but he got me in there. Yeah. Uh, I always accused him. He just wanted to get rid of me because I was so screwed up. But I don't think that was the case. But anyway, so everything went good. Great guys. We did pretty. I got a lot of fishing stories there too. But uh, anyway, that that's just one thing leads to another. 
And then I built the boat. I didn't build it. Pacific Pearl built the boat again. And I got to run that boat. And that boat sunk on us. We're heading out to the Bering Sea. And it rolled over. Were you the skipper? I was the skipper. What was the name of that vessel? Miss Alaska. It was a Martin Olich boat. Brand new? No. We'd had it a year or two. Uh, it was a different kind of boat. You'll. That's where I got my education on boat builders and boat that, and because. Uh, what went wrong? Well, there's never one thing, and like I say, when I got to running the Amatuli, I'd only been on the boat. Uh, the boat was the shellfish. I'd only been on the boat 13 months. And you got me off my track here telling that drinking story at the Christian and the skipper says, I'll never bring in another skipper over you guys. You know, and I had an engineer that had been on there for years, another guy had been with him for years, and I just kind of, you know, I didn't know how to start the goddamn engine then. <laughs> so one guy went off and bought his own boat, and the other guy went off and bought his own boat. One time around Christmas, he says, well, it looks like it's you. Oh, shit. That's pretty good. One of your guys was, spoke on here, and I knew exactly what he was talking about, being a bluffer. Oh, I was, hella, I was good at bluffing. That was Derek Hart. Okay, well, I, that, you know, I, I, I thought a lot of these stories, the same, all the guys could tell the same story, just a different boat and a different place, but the same kind of, you know, mm-hmm. at, atmosphere about it. They've all gone, you know, you only got four or five people on the boat. You, you can not, there's only so many variables. And, but, but anyway, we got that boat. And, of course, I called up everybody. And Chuck Wells, who's another hero of mine, uh, was having the shaman built down here. And he called me up and said, what the hell's going on? Because another one had rolled over right here in the Sound on the way up. Same build as the Miss Alaska? Yeah. So, and I was no boat builder, but I was, I'd been building boats, but I didn't have all the theory. And all that stuff down, I gave them a list of about six things, and they all went wrong on the same day. You know, I just boom, boom, boom. That's when you have a problem. One thing goes wrong, you can take care of that one thing. Two things go wrong, then you're looking two ways, and three things go wrong. <laughs> well, that's it's good to have a team then, <laughs> you know. But in, in, in any case, I learned a lot. We went down to the boat builder, and I said, you know, if, if I build another, if. Uh, I said, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And the boat builder said, well, if that's the way you want it, that's the way we'd have built it. Well, shit, I didn't know what the hell, you know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to learn s- safety when your boots are half full of water. You know, that's a hard time. And that, that's why, yeah, you can talk to people at Trident anywhere. I've been a pretty big proponent of training, training, training. Because training, well, I had a buddy that was a jet pilot. He kind of informed me, he says, he said, we, when I had a rocket go up my furnace, he said, that's a hell of a time to bring out the book and say, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. So he, he said, it's kind of the same thing, but it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that, that all worked out, and I got to pat the Coast Guard the way they handled me. I come in, and that was when the first time when the Coast Guard spread this rumor that if you have an oil spill and you turn it in yourself, we'll go easy on you. Well, that was about the time Vietnam was getting heated up, and I didn't really think much of the government telling me what they would do to make life easier for me. You know, they were trying to kill half my my buddies. So I'm in Kodiak, and I sat around that night. God damn. So I went out to the Coast Guard base. All they, they just wave, wave you through. It's not like now. You know, I just, I went up there and I went to the day, what do they call it, the ready room where the pilots sit around and watch TV and joke until they get called. And I'm wandering around there and this pilot comes up and says, hey, how you doing, young fella? What are you doing? He says, well, I'm out here to report an oil spill. I was smart enough to understand. Now, this is years ago. I was smart enough to understand when a guy's talking with the way he was talking, Listen, don't interrupt me. Don't just keep your mouth shut. What's the deal? I said, well, that boat out there, 
Oh, yeah, I heard about that one, yeah. And I said, well, I had 12,000 gallons of fuel on it. The boat's sitting in the bottom of the ocean. There must have been an oil spill. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a logical, linear guy. <laughs> I just wanted to re report it. And he looked at me. He was still in this silent mode. He hollered back to the other guys in the ready room. He said, hey, you guy, you just got back from flying over that boat out there. Did you see any oil? And I said, no, we didn't see any oil. We didn't see any oil. God, I liked hearing that. Because I, I thought my my next trip was going to be to the brig some goddamn place. He said, well, he says, I'll tell you, we're, we're going to be watching that for a few days, and if we ever if we ever spot some oil, we'll get a hold of it. Just going home. Because I still had water dripping off my ears like an old spaniel dog, you know, and I wasn't real proud of myself, you know. <laughs> With that big brand-new boat and everything, you kind of go from being the cock of the walk to feeling pretty shitty, all in 30 seconds. What's what happened? What went wrong with the? Well, it's a combination of things. We 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 got water in the in an empty tank, and and we had uh, fuel tanks in the bottom. I hate that on a boat because it's fuel. In my opinion, I this is just me. Uh, it's it's fuel you can't use because. I've never seen a sailboat or another boat with an air bubble in the bottom of your boat. You know, duh. Start one, two, and reasonably think that one through. Mm -hmm. And if you pump the air out, you got a bubble which changes all the dynamics. But here again, I didn't, you know, I, I just didn't, didn't know. And we had a tank across the bow. Now, I, I'm not, I'm just saying this is my impression. I'm not an architect. Uh, I'm a half-assed architect. When you got a tank across the bow of your boat, all the way across with no baffles in it, and it's half full of fuel, that's a free surface. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, so if all three things happen at once, it's just hard to, but I didn't know anything, but I didn't think, think about that stuff. But when Chuck Wells and I got together, we're thinking about it, trying to go through it. Of course, his boat was still in the yard, and there's three or four others of that style laid over on there, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, I'm not trying to make an excuse. I'm just saying that's the way it was. I just, but how did it happen? Yeah. When, when did you realize you had problem one? Problem well, the two. boat rolled over to the right side, and I had another guy in watch, and I was three miles off Dangerous Cape. Uh, this is a story. Uh, so we didn't have survival seats in those, in those days. We had the life raft, but no survival seats. So I run, run up there. And I could see where we're laying, but we, we had a real problem. We had we had put some boats. They had stacked all the pots up to the rail that goes over over the back. There's an overhang, and they stacked. But in constructing the boat, the door when it opened went past that overhang, past it. So if something was stacked on it, you couldn't close the door. Well, it was a hot sunny day, you know shit. The door was open. So I told the guy, get down there and close that door, and they all stand there staring at me. And I had a hell of a crew. They weren't much for staring if they could do it. I said, well, we can't. And they're all stacked in there, and they're all stacked, and the cutting torch is over on the other side. Of course, I'm thinking about all, but we're laying over on this side, and here's another thing I don't like. The back door to the wheelhouse was at the back of the wheelhouse. Right around the corner, or not even the corner, is the door to the engine room. So that started filling up the galley, and there's about a foot and a half of water on the door, going to the engine room. So if you open that door, you're going to the engine room, you ain't coming back, because there's gonna be a, mm -hmm. a, I mean, <laughs> and another thing nobody thinks of, I'm sure they do now, but we had that floor, they call it torganol floor, it's kind of varnation they throw paint chips on it. It's great for hosing and cleaning, but when you got wet socks, they don't wear the shit. You know, you in fact I had a friend that took a boat out of here. I think he's passed. And it rolled to it laid laid over on him, right out of the yard. And the guy has got in the life raft and he never showed up, so they had to go back on the boat. And he was knocked out because he had slipped on the floor and rolled to the lower lower half down there. 
So they had to get him and wake him up and get him on, not wake him up, but get him out of his stupor because he slipped on that goddamn torque all floor. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing I'm, I don't like torque. I like that rubber stuff you can get. They, I think they have some in Trident over on the steps. And you got to think on a boat, what do you do when they get wet? That's different than being laid at the dock here. How often does it come to your mind, though, till you've been on one of those floors? Oh, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I, after I see it, it's no duh. I hate that expression, by the way. My kids gave it to me. That's where I learned it. But, so, that was the story. And then, well, it got worse when I'm on the, the radio. I know exactly. I just looked in the radar before I turned it over to this other guy. It was a straight shot, and it was just, and it was three miles off Dangerous Cape. I remember putting the three-mile ring on it. So I grabbed that radio. In those days, you didn't have quite the communication that you have now. I think it was 20, 2509, or, and, and we only had one radio, so when you switched, you give out a mayday, you don't hear anything back, your motivation is to turn to another channel. But if you turn to another channel and somebody asks you, you aren't going to hear it. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of figuring out what I was going to do here. But just before I turned it to another channel, somebody said, I got you, Bart. But we, we had to move pretty quick. You know, things were getting bad. And it was just because we were laid over like this. So I got the crew and I said, go up on the roof. And here is another one, an aluminum roof with an eight-man life raft. We only got one, two, three, four, four guys on there. Well, eight-man life raft on the high side of the boat. So you gotta, you don't wanna throw it off the low side, you gotta throw it off the high side. So the boat, you know, you hear all these stories of the rigging and the gear. Yeah. This is what you call learning by doing. And so I said, you guys get up there, roll in. So as soon as you get that thing over, go down to the pot rack because that was the only spare space where they could get it up on. And, you know, there was no uh, no pots on the rack, and we could jump off there. On the... Well, then I start hear, hearing this hissing going on. Well, I'm not a genius, but when I knew that meant something had gone wrong, they'd have popped, they potted, the, they popped the painter, painter string. So... The raft starting to overflow or go over, it's starting to expand and everything. And I'm my worst dream was that getting caught in the rigging. In the rigging. And then what are you going to do? So I pull, pull, shove, shove, pull, and we shoved it over and it landed upside down. Well, that was better than not landing. But then as it's going back, because the boat is still moving, the raft is going down towards the stern, and I didn't want to miss that, that spot. So I grabbed the paint, painter line and tied it off on a tie-up thing. Not, not thinking, I knew there's a weak link somewhere, but we hadn't, you know, I didn't know, was it at the raft? Was it at where the raft was tied onto the roof, you know? And I said, oh, maybe I tied it off. We all jump on there and the boat goes down and it pulls the raft down. Right. I mean, I, this is, so you're always going about five miles a minute, so I asked, Bunky, I remember Bunky, he's since passed, give me your knife. He gave me the knife. And I said, when I holler jump, you all jump. And we're still going, I holler jump, and they all jump. See, I'd been running a boat for a couple of years. And you you lose your, your, men, your not mental, but your physical dexterity fast when you start sit, sitting there eating candy bars and drinking coffee and all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So, they, they jumped. I cut the rope. I can remember just like as yesterday. People say I'm getting a bad memory, but I remember this. And I threw this away because I knew if I landed on the boat with this knife, I might puncture it. Yeah, I had all this. But then I'm thinking, throw the knife away. But I'm thinking, three miles off Dangerous Cape, I better keep it because I might need it to kill a bear or a deer or some damn thing. <laughs> I don't know. But I did. I threw it over my head and plop I landed in the water so I paddled over towards the upside down life raft with my three crew on it and I got up got got on the top of it and 
in relationship to being on the, I'd like to have an EKG on me because in relationship to being on a boat sinking on an upside down rifle, light raft in the Gulf of Alaska is pretty good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm just using little metaphors. Oh yeah, know? no, I'm getting but, it. But yeah, I was feeling, we were pre pretty, until one of the true at, crew asked me, did you get the Mayday call, call off? And I thought about that as well, sure. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, but I wasn't sure. You know, I, I didn't know if I'd imagined it or I'd heard it. Well, you'd made the call and you thought you heard someone say, "Got yeah, you yeah." I mean, that, that 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 was all I had. But I was pretty. I was talking more more confident what it was because I I didn't want the guys to jump off, start swimming for Kodiak. <laughs> so, but I had just come back from Norway on SAS and they had a, a card in there that showed you stuff. And one of them was how to turn over a life raft. We had ne never had any of that kind of training before. You know, you get everybody lined up on one side and you pull and you pull. And so I said, this is how we're going to do. I thought I was smart and we pulled it over. But everybody else, as it, all the crewmen, as it turned over, they crawled around and climbed in. They didn't even get wet. Of course, I go kerplunk, <laughs> pull it way down and they had to haul me in again. So what, hey, was the, what was the water? Uh, was it cold? Oh, I, no, it oh. was. We were going out there for a summer fishery in the Bering Sea. Okay. Well, it got cold, but okay. it, it, way, yeah. it it wasn't like that thirty second thing. But anyway, they they got me back in the raft, and I got in there. The raft's half full of water, and it's dark, and you we'd never seen a life raft. You know, we'd seen it in the canister. So anyway, this can eat, eat up your tape if you want to hear the whole story. But in any case, I get in there and we're all kind of feeling kind of three miles off Dangerous Cape. That, and it, being an upside down life raft isn't all that great when you think about it. But before you think about it, you think, oh shit, man, we're in tall cotton. Well, we finally got it turned over and got in there. And there's these water activated lights. Don't believe it. They're not water activated. <laughs> and boy, they had water to activate them. <laughs> And so the whole raft is full of water. But here's another thing I told you. I think this is an eight or a ten-man raft. Number one, four guys won't warm it up. And four guys can hardly handle it. You know, that, that's why I'd much rather on a four-man boat have a, two four-man rafts. One on each side, depending on. But that's me. Now, and another key point is when you throw something overboard... And you have to throw it to the hard side, and you're on an aluminum deck with no footholds. You can't, I don't know if it's Archimedes or who was that opposite equal reaction, but it works on the top of an aluminum roof and your wet feet. You just can't move hardly anything. But they, in fact, I think that's probably why it popped. But anyway... That's the way that went, and we we got in there, so we got the the water out, and we're all talking. Oh, I got, I got, no, no problems. I was a little nervous, and all of a sudden, how long, I don't know, but pretty soon, and, and, and I'm, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I got it out. I didn't know who. It was a woman. I know who it is now. But after about an hour and a half. Two hours, and you know, hours go slow <laughs> when you're on a, in a life raft. But you start to cool off, you know, and everybody's thinking. And whoop, 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 here it comes over land. From, blim, 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 you know, that. You've heard that sound. Helicopter. All the Vietnam movies and everything is a helicopter coming. So I was feeling pretty good then. But back in those days, they didn't have rescue swimmers. So, so the guys fly over us. We didn't have a waterproof handheld to talk to them. You know, they, they, this is the old days. And the guy flies around, and they drop flares, four flares around, just to get fire, get to get light, so they could see if anybody's floating. But we couldn't communicate. You know, you just, just waving. And it, if you think you've been under a helicopter, you got to be under one in the water. That's a different life experience. Because that's that's what I always thought they should do for these life raft races. They have every get everybody in the water and have a coast guard come down right over them, and then they'll find out what communicating is when you got three hundred or how many and the water's gone and you can't see and you can't breathe. 
So, and so, so the guy, but I didn't know enough, I'd read somewhere where they have to drop the basket off to the edge to ground it out because of the static electricity that comes down and then they drag it over. If you just grab it, it'll give you shock. So I get on the door, another big, no, no, no. I, I get on where the door was and bring it, I'd grab it and I'd bring a guy down and say, get in. Now here's another thing. We get three, four guys in a raft. Everybody wants in on that first basket. No, I don't care what anybody tells you. They all want in. But I intuitively knew all four of us couldn't do it. You know. All of us going to get on there. Yeah, I, I no, no, no. So I had to, I had to come up with, with some kind of solution that made sense. I don't know why. But uh, I said, okay, the guy with the most kids goes first. That was Jerry. And then Bunky. And the last guy to go, and I'm sitting on the edge of this life raft in the door. You know, you've seen those life rafts sitting oh, yeah. over here. Oh, yeah. And he brings the bucket down, and I called the guy. He was at the other end of the life raft. Come on down. And as he came to me, then I don't know if I'm using the right word, but the vortex or all that air current coming down went under the life raft lid, cape, and picked it up. And put it in the air, flop, top to bottom, top to bottom, and, and I'm holding on to the rope, and it's flopping back and forth until the helicopter left. Well, so I had to go find this, and luckily this guy was kind of a hippie, he had long hair, and I see this hair just like Kelly, in the upside down life raft, and I put a couple of half inches and pulled him out. So things are going okay until he brought the basket down, and he brought it over and he's sitting there next to me and I said, get the basket. And he's gagging and spitting and gagging. And I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I was wearing Levi's and a t-shirt and socks. And he said, well, he, he couldn't say. But I, there's an anchor some way to stabilize you in rough water. And there's about a quarter inch manila line that went from the bottom of the boat upside down around his neck and down. Well, I tried to lift it up. I could feel in, in the dark what was going on. But I couldn't lift it up to get slack to get it off his head. You know, I mean, because I'd go up and down I go. You know, I just couldn't, I didn't have it figured out yet. So I felt it around his neck and here's, I know. You wish you had that knife right now. <laughs> well, yeah, I did, but I really, well, See, I didn't know if I'm going to get in the basket and go up and tell him and send somebody down, go up and get a knife and come on down. But he wasn't going anywhere. I don't care what was happening. So I said, well, I had, this had nothing to do with anything except what was in my, my brain. I'd taken water safety instruction and all that, and I learned how to turn somebody in the water if you go out to rescue them and they fight you. You got to sink down, grab them on the hip, and twist them left or right. You have a lot of leverage, and I mean, it makes sense until you do it. It really makes sense. And I said, "Well, I," and I kind of looked at how it's going. I went down, I turned them, I turned the right way. Otherwise, I'd have just wound you up again. <laughs> but anyway, put a tighter on it, I guess. So, so I said, "Okay." So they bring the basket down, and we're going through the same thing. I throw his ass in there and they start lifting it off. From the life raft to him or the basket, on the end of the life raft, they have kind of a cargo net thing for climbing up. That had gone down through his life vest and wrapped around his leg. Well, those, I learned on that too, those are the life, uh, the life vest, they just had a strap and you tie a knot. They don't have the kind now where you put the snap in. Mm -hmm. Well, he he was aggressive. He tied that thing tight. And I'm sitting there. He's still down there. And I'm trying to get the, get this, uh, see, as they pull him up, I could see. So I signal and they dropped him back down. But this thing was down in his life raft around his leg. Well, oh, God. So... I tried to get this thing off, but I'm treading water. My fingers are frozen. I'm trying to untie that knot. I wouldn't get anywhere, you know? So 
some way in all the communications, they started take, taking him up, and I said, oh, shit, this is going to be bad. It's either going to pull the helicopter down, because if it's hooked to the life raft, they got a big life raft that was full of water, or if it's hooked to his neck, it's going to tear him in half. But eh, if I was ever to write the great American movie, this would be one of my scenes. You got the strobe lights going, and the blades, and the water. And just as he got to the helicopter, the strap came loose, and it started floating down. I'll never forget seeing that, because I thought for shit, or I thought for sure things were gonna get worse, you know. And this thing floated down into the water. And I said, ah, that was pretty. But I was getting pretty chilly. And I talked to the pilot afterwards, and he kind of knew, because well, he's a professional. And he saw what was going on, and you see, no survival suits. But I'm telling you, none of the boats had survival suits. You know, maybe some guys had a wetsuit or something. But in any case, they finally brought that basket down for me. But laying on the water, there's ropes and lines, and just like a snake farm. Of course, I'm trying to push those things away, and the helicopter comes down and pushes them back. <laughs> it's a real, you know... But they got that basket down, and I climbed in it. They put it, I don't know if it's electric or it's hydraulic, but boy, when that line comes tight, you feel it. You're going, oh, uh yeah. uh The worst part, I get, get it in the helicopter, and here comes this, this semen, whatever, he's got a thermos bottle with warm coffee, and I'm sitting there shaking. I mean shaking. I don't know if you've been shaking, but I was really just throwing my arms all over the place. Well, what do they call that the young kids get? Well, you're born, born with this muscular. You're throwing stuff all over. He'd give me this cup, and he'd pour coffee, and I'd throw it all over the place. The pilot starts hollering. What's going on? You're going to short out all my equipment. I'm throwing, because <laughs> I could not hold that damn thing. I kept telling the guy, he said, I can't. He says, but I got this, says, if you were. He's <laughs> reading the book. He's yeah. reading the manual. Pull, I'm saying, well, put pull, him. Pull the captain out of the water. He's freezing. Page 32 says to give him hot liquid. <laughs> yeah, well, I throwing it all over the helicopter. I said, you put a nipple on that damn thing or something. And so, <laughs> but we finally got, got back to Kodiak. And then, of course, I got my story all out of, that was the next day I went back and turned myself in for, for the oil slate. Yeah. With, with that said, uh, we're going to take a break here yeah. for just a minute. Go ahead. Uh, we're going we're gonna to call this one episode one <laughs> well. with Bart. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, this is Mark from Galley Stories, and we'll see you the following Monday when his episode two comes up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't need that.